This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone. Uh, we are back with another episode of Empire. We got myself today, no Santi, and we got Joe Laluz, who is the head of Coinbase Cloud. Uh, he was previously the founder of Grand Street, which was a marketplace that was acquired by Etsy. He ran innovation at, at Etsy, uh, and then in 2018 launched Bison Trails, which I remember talking to, I think, your co-founder back in 2018, right when you guys had just launched. I was like, I don't understand this business at all, but it sounds really, really cool. And the more that the space has grown, the more I realized how uh, many years ahead of the trend you guys were. Uh, and then recently, I think about a year ago, February 2021, um, Joe and the Bison Trails team got acquired by Coinbase. Uh, and Joe is now running Coinbase Cloud. So we're going to talk all about that uh, and his thoughts on the industry. So Joe, welcome to Empire, my friend. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much for the intro and um, super pumped to be here. I uh, I appreciate appreciate the kind the kind words. It's uh, it's always weird to like hear your own intro and be like, oh, I guess I did kind of do some of those things. Um, and yeah, yeah, I mean the space has changed uh, like crazy over the last little while. But I'm super excited to talk about kind of what's going on, what we're excited about, and uh, and uh, hopefully put together a good show. Awesome, awesome. Let's do it. All right, so I think we need to start just actually at the top, which is. When people think of Coinbase, think they think of three things probably. They think of the retail wallet, which is where most people probably bought their first Bitcoin and continue to buy uh, their crypto. They think of uh, maybe the institutional business with like Coinbase Prime and you guys acquired like Zappo and turned that into Coinbase Custody and acquired Tagomi and Coinbase Prime and uh, have built a really, really strong institutional business. Uh, and then recently, obviously, you guys launched Coinbase uh, NFT, which you guys did an amazing job with that. It looks a lot like Instagram. And I sent this tweet out that it looks like a kind of Web3 version of, of Instagram. Uh, and, and I think a lot of folks like that. So, uh, But now you guys have this Coinbase cloud business that I really transparently don't know much about. And that's what I want to dig in to with you on this podcast. So can you just give us a high level on what is Coinbase Cloud and almost just like what is the problem that you guys are solving here? Yeah, you bet. Um, so I love I love that framing also. Um, that's you know exactly right. Coinbase's mission is all about uh, you know uh, increasing economic freedom around the world. And so we've taken a few different strategic approaches to that. So um, I love that you know you said people still go to Coinbase to buy their first uh, their first crypto, their first Bitcoin. It's amazing. Um, it's fantastic, and we have our wallet product. Uh, and now we launched this NFT marketplace, which we're obviously super pumped about. And um, you know the NFT space has been kind of insane in the last year, year and a half. So it's been really cool to see all the new folks that are onboarding to crypto that way. Um, so Coinbase Cloud uh, is our developer platform. So it's a suite of uh, products, infrastructure, APIs, SDKs, uh, and developer products to help uh, people build in the crypto and Web3 space. Um, it's awesome. I'm, I'm really excited to be heading up uh, Coinbase Cloud because uh, this is really a continuation. Uh, you had mentioned you know, earlier on in the intro that uh, I had started this company with my co-founder called Bison Trails, and uh, our mission was very similar. It was all about uh, enabling participation and helping builders build in the space. And so Coinbase Cloud is really a continuation of that mission and that vision. And the idea is, uh, you know, we, we have 
not, not just the cloud team, but at Coinbase, we have this uh, view of crypto uh, that it's going to be you know, the, the modern application platform, the modern software platform for builders. And um, we uh, recognized pretty early on, um, in particular, you know, before joining Coinbase, that uh, building in the crypto space is just incredibly difficult. Um, and, you know, we, 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 you know, you can talk to a lot of different builders in the space and it's difficult for a few different reasons. You know, one of the biggest reasons is blockchains are, you know, or at least the ones we mostly work on are, are public goods. Um, they're sort of maintained by large collectives or large groups of people all over the world. Um, they're decentralized, which means that it's really hard to control them. <laughs> it's really hard to, which is a good thing, right? We, we want that. They're decentralized. It's really hard to control them. But when it's hard to control something, it's also really hard to build on top of it. So imagine, you know, you're, you're, trying to uh, build a, a building on top of a ground that's like constantly shifting and constantly moving and constantly changing. And that's kind of how we uh, view the crypto and blockchain space. So, you know, blockchains are, are you know, going through upgrades uh, and changing and, you know, the, you have these incredible builders that are trying to build products and services on top of them while, while those things are changing. And so um, our entire vision here is, you know, how do we make it easier for people to build in the space and, and participate in chains? And so we've launched a few products that enable us to do that. Uh, but that's that's really the foundation of Coinbase Cloud. So you can think of us as uh, maybe the maybe today the the sort of fourth pillar within within Coinbase. So like you said, there's the sort of retail app uh, where people buy. Um, there's the institutional uh, product where you know large money managers and uh, funds use uh, use the products and services like Prime to. Uh, trade or or buy or sell crypto, and we have the NFT marketplace which we launched, and everyone's super excited about that. And then we have our developer product, so it's all about helping developers, um, new developers, existing developers, and this kind of includes, you know, whether you're two folks at like a hackathon trying to get started, um, or you're you know uh, a you know a pretty large scale maybe a new a neo bank or a fintech, and you want to like uh, add crypto products or services to your offering. Um, we work with a whole bunch of different companies uh, to be able to, to to help them do that. So when I think about, there are a couple of businesses that come to mind here as like an analogy, right? So if you hear about the Collison brothers talking about Stripe, it's like the reason they succeeded is you could add seven lines of code to a site to handle payments, right? And then you think about, so Stripe comes to mind, uh, Shopify actually comes to mind as well, maybe as a business to compare to. Um, yeah. Someone like Snowflake comes to mind, something like AWS comes to mind. So how do you guys think about just almost like what this business is analogous to in the Web two world. Yeah, to totally, and it's, it's a great question. So, um, I, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, maybe I'll come clean on on, on something here. <laughs> we, uh, while I, I don't love using the this for that sort of analogies, they do help people kind of frame frame the thinking around it. Um, and even early on in like the early uh, Bison Trails days, and still uh, with Coinbase Cloud, we do talk about building AWS for crypto. And, uh, you know, when you use these examples like Stripe or Shopify, they're also really great examples, right? It's taking something which was previously quite difficult, like adding payments to your product or building a website. You know, 20 years ago, building a website was really, really hard. I know like today it sounds like it's probably the easiest thing on the, on the planet. You click a couple buttons, boom, you have a website. Um, but it was really, really difficult. And similarly, we're trying to take um, participating and building uh, on top of blockchains and in crypto, much much easier. So we we talk about it, you know, internally mostly about you know how do how would we build AWS for crypto? Uh, and the thing that's that's really important to remember here is uh, AWS, you know, is now don't quote me on the time here, but like about twenty years old ballpark. You know, maybe a little bit less than twenty years old. 
Um, and so these these types of uh, products that are you know the, the sort of underlying infrastructure for making it easier for people to build in Web two or uh, build products in Web two take take a long time uh, to come to fruition. Um, even something like Stripe or something like uh, uh, Shopify, you, we kind of forget that you know before being able to build Stripe or before being able to build Shopify, there's this entire series of of you know infrastructure, lower level infrastructure companies that existed that helped power those. So you know I don't know what Shopify is built on top of, but a lot of uh, cloud based infrastructure supports modern applications. So yeah, one of the common analogies is like, you know, Netflix runs on AWS, right? Like we have Netflix, everybody, a lot of people use Netflix. We know what that is. And, and not a lot of people think that there was a, a whole bunch of enablers behind the uh, ability to launch and build, you know, streaming uh, web web video. And so we kind of think, our, think of ourselves in those early, still of those early phases of AWS. So when AWS launched, it was really you know, there's kind of two products when they first launched pretty early on. There was one was EC2, which was this ability to uh, basically launch a server uh, on the internet. So we kind of think about our uh, node product in that way. So how can you launch a, you know, a, a blockchain server? Uh, there's a few different applications for that. So one is staking, and we can talk a little bit more about staking if you want uh, afterwards. And the other is really like connecting uh, and uh, uh, receiving and transmitting data on blockchain. So you know, submitting transactions, reading transactions, reading contract contract data, and it's like the connective tissue of uh, the crypto space. Um, this you know, the second product at AWS was S3, and it's like a storage product. And so you know, very similar like these underlying uh, pieces of technology. Now, if you look at a you know product like um, AWS, they have, you know, 50, a hundred, I actually don't know, but you know, a hundred <laughs> or plus, uh, products and services that builders can go and use. And they're all sort of, um, abstractions and, and, you know, we use the word composable in crypto a lot. So, you know, they're all sort of abstractions and composable on top of each other. Uh, but they're these centralized yeah. entities. Uh, and so that's, that's how we think about, uh, our positioning right now. It's still very early in crypto. I know, um, even, uh, Bison Trails is now something like four years old, um, and cloud. The, the work we've been doing with cloud is you know dates dates around then, um, but it's still still very very early. So we're in those early phases, and um, you know we're, we're building alongside other developers, and we're learning from them. We're understanding their problems um, and what difficulties they have building in the space, and uh, and then building products to help serve that. So mm-hmm. uh, more pointedly, you'd ask like, what problem are we solving? Um, you know, one of the problems that we found, and and uh, and, and I actually kind of like this bit of the story. Um, you know, we started trying to solve our own problems, which is, you know, in my opinion, some of the best ways to build a product or build a company. And uh, one of the problems we found was, in particular, in Ethereum. You know, it was really difficult to, uh, you know, launch a node, make sure that that node was synced, would make sure that it was at the tip of the the chain, make sure that you could. Um, process information and connect to other nodes. Uh, that that actually took like a tremendous amount of time. And now there's you know a few products and services that allow you to do that a little bit better, which is great. And um, that was kind of how we started thinking about uh, our business and our our platform. It's an interesting strategy, right? Because when I think about some of the other uh, folks that you guys compete with, you know, some of them have actually launched their own chains, right? Uh, some of them have instead of launching their own chains, they've gotten very. Uh, close with or, you know, very kind of synced up with uh, some of the other L1s as well and kind of put their foot in the ground and said, this is the L1 that we're partnering with. So some have launched their own L1, some have kind of partnered with L1s and you guys took a different strategy and said, we're not going to build our own blockchain. Instead, we're just going to build on top of some of this infrastructure and make it easier for folks to build this on top of the infrastructure. Is that, am I getting that right? Is that the strategy? And if so, 
why like why is that the strategy why not go launch coinbase chain or why not go buddy up with with like avalanche or something like that yeah i think um there's probably sort of so, so um yeah that has been our strategy and um we've uh, been pretty successful at uh deploying uh infrastructure and, and helping folks build and stake and run uh, run nodes on a whole variety of chains and so i think we support like they're a little over 35 right now, um, which is pretty significant, right? It's, you know, it's not one. We're not just supporting Ethereum. Uh, we're not just supporting Avalanche or Solana or something like that. We're supporting all of them. Um, and I'd say there's, there's you know, kind of two main reasons um, why, we d- why we decided to do that. Uh, the first is um, we wanted to, uh, we, we believed that the best way to engage the entire developer community was to stay uh, pretty neutral from a, a L1 perspective. So to look at each of these blockchains and say, any one of these has an opportunity to be you know, a major chain. Um, any one of these, uh, e- each of these chains, I should say, have their sort of costs and their benefits. So you can look at, you know, just even like, I, I, you know, it's kind of a, a bit in the, in the, the conversation these days in, in, in crypto, like, you know, the speed and, and transaction processing speed of like something like a Solana um, versus the, um, you know, developer community that's on Ethereum. And we wanted to make sure that we stayed relatively neutral. So we were thinking about how can we help any of these chains um, continue to grow and how can we help uh, builders that want to build on Ethereum or Solana or Avalanche or, you know, whatever it is, help them help them uh, grow which was important to us. So this is about, you know, the ethos of the space, making sure that we actually support decentralization instead of like forcing, being a forcing function for people to just build on Ethereum or, you know, just build on, um, you know, any L2 as well. The second was really about a thesis of the, the future. Um, and I'd say this is more of an opinion as opposed to uh, an, an ethos-driven um, approach. When we started building uh, the company and the platform, um, we had this belief uh, and this is, I'll, I'll give like a little kind of, I don't know if I've actually ever talked about this publicly before. So this is, this is cool. Um, <laughs> using some of our experience in web two, we had this belief that all software will be crypto software in the future. And that all modern software will use a whole variety of different crypto protocols uh, and crypto chains to help achieve their goals. So this could be something that's, you know, one chain could be specifically focused on payments, one could be focused on transactions, one could be focused on data, one could, you know, and we're actually seeing that come to fruition. So there's a whole bunch of L1s that are being are being built that are, you know, I won't call them application specific, but maybe more modular than some of the sort of generalized chains that we've seen. And so we had this thesis that modern software over the next 10 to 15 years will start to move in that direction. Um, where a piece of software, an application, let's just say like a user app, let's say the future of Web3 social is actually going to incorporate like 15, 20 different protocols as part of its underlying um, software stack. And so by going and supporting all of these different chains, we sort of put a stake in the ground behind, no pun intended, put a stake in the ground behind our thesis that uh, we're going to exist in a multi-chain world, that there isn't just going to be one chain where people develop there isn't just going to be a Bitcoin as a store of value. There isn't just going to be an Ethereum as a, uh, you know, a smart contract platform. We're going to see a lot of them. They're going to have different benefits, and developers have the opportunity to to pick and choose which ones they want to use 
in their applications. And so that was, you know, a lot of our strategy was like, let's go wide, let's make sure we support them so that as this comes to fruition, we're there and we can help people build. And I'll say, you know, four years later, we're looking at, um, you know, some of the hottest topics right now are kind of like cross-chain, cross-chain interoperability, um, you know, even things like staking across chains and how do we move assets between them. And if you, you know, distill crypto down to the ability for computers to kind of permissionlessly and, and trustlessly communicate with each other and transfer value, that's a really, really important concept. And so this was kind of like taking a step back and saying like, all right, where do we see the world of crypto in 10 years? And it was pretty obvious to us that if you looked at any old Web2 software, it was always, you know, they were built using like, you know, 15 different protocols or different sort of pieces of technology. And we imagine the same thing for crypto. And so that's why yeah. we kind of went in that direction. Yeah. In media, um, there's a long history of like basically bundling and unbundling. And you see it with, you know, these big companies get built and then creators break off and things like Substack get built. And now people are bundling the Substacks. In, uh, in, in kind of tr uh, technology, you actually see the same thing, bundling and unbundling. And so in like Web2, you see the protocols come and you've got this like open free internet in the 1990s and you've got HTTP and, uh, you know, SMTP. And then basically uh, someone like Google comes along and takes SMTP and puts Gmail on top of it and Microsoft puts Outlook on top of it. And now you've got only two email providers. In crypto, you're kind of seeing the same thing. You've got these like open free protocols. But then um, if, you, if you read the Moxie piece back, uh, the uh, what Moxie do? Founded Signal. Uh, you know, he's very uh, kind of a I don't know if he's against this, but he, I think he calls it out as a flag, right? He says that Web3 infrastructure is starting to centralize. You've got things like, I think he was trying to call um, an NFT image, but really he realized it was just like OpenSea's API, um, I'm pretty sure. So what are your thoughts on, on Moxie, someone like Moxie, and just like this overall thought of, great, for the last decade, we have this like very decentralized nature and it's really the ethos of crypto. But now what's happening is we're going back to just centralizing everything under these centralized infrastructure providers. Yeah, so uh, this, this is exactly right. I think uh, I, so. I did. I did read. Uh, I did read the piece, uh, and um, I think it was something along the lines of he was trying to get an NFT and realized it was just like hosted on an S three bucket, which is like even worse than just like, you know, um, which is essentially like I look at an NFT and it's like actually just on Amazon. Uh, and yeah, um, that's and so, exactly right. Uh, I, I would say that uh, when I read that piece, I was like, this is really helpful. So my, you, you know, I kind of asked my thoughts on like someone like Moxie. I, I actually think it's very, very important for um, people in the space in crypto, outside of crypto, as they come in, as they explore to call these things out. Because I think the best way that we can build uh, better protocols, better decentralized technology is that we're honest with ourselves about where we're making these trade-offs. So there's always going to be this trade-off of, you know, I, I kind of mentioned before building on building in crypto is kind of like building on moving ground. And so, um, and, and, you know, the more centralized it is, the more stable the ground is and the more decentralized it is, the less stable the ground is. And we're going to constantly make trade-offs on time to market, uh, you know, the, the type of product, what the product is trying to achieve. And we're going to make trade-offs on decentralization. We're going to make trade-offs on availability, on speed. And so it's really important as people come into the space to acknowledge that and say like, Hey, I tried to <laughs> use, you know, this NFT, I looked it up and it was like just being hosted on uh, S3. I will say that um, I think that that is, is important to call out, but I also think it's a, it's, you know, a bit of hyperbole. There's lots of NFT projects that are actually using decentralized storage as a means for um, supporting their assets. So you can look at like protocols like Arweave or IPFS um, that are being used on the back end instead of centralized services. Um, so, you know, 
to the extent that like, you know, that specific example was like a call out of like, hey, some projects are doing this. I think it's unfair to say all of them. There's also a trend in the NFT space right now to, to do uh, what's called, um, I'm actually maybe going to butcher what it's called, but you know, it's like the uh, on-chain, basically like on-chain images. And so they'll right. render SVGs on-chain or they'll store even the pixels or the, 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 the data for the pixels on-chain. So those are um, not, uh, they're not ephemeral, they're, they're, they exist forever. So I'd say like, it's really important to call it, call it out and call a spade a spade and figure out where we can do better and where we're, where, what we're doing is good enough. Um, you know, the, the, the other thing I'd say is that like, uh, we, um, you know, and, and this kind of aligns with our vision is like, how do we make sure that we help NFT builders, for instance, use things like IPFS or use things like Arweave and how do we make sure we're, it's, we're making it easy for them to either use APIs to do this or to. Um, run infrastructure on these protocols to be able to do this. And um, the more we can support that. You, you see something like Arweave and, and IPFS as not as a competitor, not as a kind of decentralized competitor to this more like centralized cloud um, uh, provider, but uh, more, more as someone who's a partner, right? Who you're plugging into. Absolutely. And so from even the earliest stages of, so there's one other thing that's really important about this, which is switching costs. So uh, from the earliest stages of our product and our platform, we've always worked with protocol teams. In fact, um, you know we're actually quite close with a lot of different protocol teams, um, including you know the Arweave team, IPFS, and a lot of the other smart contracting platforms, other L1s. And our goal was always to help them. It was you know let's take a partnership approach. Let's make it easier for people to to build in the space. So they're definitely not competitors. Um, we view them as uh, partners. You know, and we can make it easy for somebody to maybe use both IPFS and Arweave without having to spend a ton of time focusing on any one of them, right? Like there's a world where we build a storage API and it actually decentralizes across both those protocols without a developer having to think about that. So, you know, you get back to this bundling and unbundling, like there's a world where we make it easy to uh, interact with different protocols and there's a, that's, you know, would be considered a form of bundling. Um, but the alternative is you spend weeks and weeks dealing with one protocol that's, you know, moving around and, uh, and, and that's, that's quite difficult. The, the thing that I will say that I actually think is very different from web two, um, that is in web three is that the better these protocols are built, the easier it is to switch between them. And, and that's where you have to build the actual absolute best product and platform. So, um, I'll, I'll kind of maybe just like poke in on that a little bit, uh, in web two, if you're building your entire application on a closed stack, it can be quite difficult to switch. You know, if you, if you build everything you've ever done as on, you know, one company stack like AWS, for instance, it can be actually pretty hard to decide you're going to pick up and move your company to GCP. And we actually saw this in the, I'm going to say like early 2000s, a lot of companies that had built their own data centers were all of a sudden switching to cloud because they realized it was more cost effective and more scalable. It took them a long time. Some, some have, still haven't even done it, you know, and um, I'd say the majority of growth in cloud computing was from upstarts, right? Like capturing like right. new players right. and, and, um, and, you know, and there's always people that are, that are switching in web three, that switching cost in theory should be much lower. So for me to be able to move my storage from IPFS to Arweave should be pretty easy, which means that if IPFS goes down or all of a sudden governance around IPFS or, you know, Filecoin or something isn't working the way that it should be working, um, I should be able to move to Arweave pretty easily and, um, or, you know, and 
I hate singling out two protocols. There's actually quite a few uh, storage protocols, but you know, move yeah, yeah, to yeah. Arweave or, or one of the other ones as well. Mm-hmm. And I actually think this is a really key component of uh, Web3 that maybe isn't as obvious today because we're still in the earliest building phases. People aren't like, oh my God, I need to switch to a different protocol. I need to switch um, to, a, to a different backend. And so um, you know, for, for, for us, it's like, how do we make that as easy as possible? How do we make it so that a developer can see like, hey, here's an IPFS node, here's an Rweave node, here's an API that actually can automatically distribute your storage between Rweave, IPFS, whatever, storage, uh, you know, any of the other um, um, storage protocols. And, and that, uh, that to me is, is sort of where the magic lies, right? Where we actually add yeah. value by making it more decentralized in that way. Yeah. Are these, um, it's interesting, like switching costs. I, I think about switching costs a lot in DeFi because um, basically what's, uh, what DeFi has enabled is like, it's such an interesting user experience because you uh, can just like moving from like Aave to Compound is seamless, right? Or moving from like Uniswap to SushiSwap is seamless, but that actually is like not amazing for the business model. So then you have to start doing things like um, maybe playing with tokenomics and introducing things like VE for tokenomics to try to lock people up for longer. I've never thought about that with B2B businesses though, right? And I've never thought about how, you know, if we wanted to move from HubSpot to Salesforce or if we wanted to move from AWS to Azure, right now the switching costs are incredibly high, right? It's like moving from for retail, it's like my bank of uh, my Bank of America account to my Wells Fargo account or something like that. The switching costs are really high. In B two B crypto uh, products, I've never actually thought about those switching costs also being really low. So if you're someone like actually an Arweave or an IPFS or storage or Filecoin, how do you increase the moat of your business and and just improve it? Yeah, I think <laughs> so. Uh, the like product person in me actually loves this. <laughs> Because it, it starts to it starts to beg the question like there, there's this old adage in, in you know software development that uh, the best product doesn't always win um, and you know a lot of times like the marketing around it the you know go to market right. who you can lock in is often a, a predictor of who wins in a market and I actually think Web three breaks that down in an interesting way so it really depends on like how you think about <laughs> these protocols if they are businesses uh, and. If uh, what it actually does is pushes the community, the protocol foundations, the teams that are building them to continue to innovate, right? So my, my view on this is uh, it puts all these protocols and all these builders in a position where they actually have to do focus on the product and the experience because if not, and continue to innovate because if not, people will switch because it's relatively inexpensive to switch. So uh, I, I view this as like over the next 10 years, we're going to see people continuing to build uh, and continuing to innovate. And so it kind of breaks away from this, you know, innovators dilemma where, you know, you kind of get locked in and then you can sit back on your, you know, rest on your laurels and and sort of be like, well, these people can't move. It's too expensive for them to move. So we don't have to do anything. Instead, protocol teams, I'll actually expand that, not just protocol teams, everyone in crypto needs to sort of continuously be innovating to make sure that they're driving value. And I'm not talking about, you know, driving synthetic value to people that are holding your token. I'm not token. I'm talking about like driving value to the ecosystem around the, you know, the, 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 the protocol that you've built. Um, and I, I think that's super, super powerful. 
as far as the business models are concerned, I think like, you know, the jury's still out on what exactly the business model is for a protocol. You know, like if we look at something like Ethereum and we see transaction fees as like a corollary for a business model, it looks like an amazing business, right? Transaction fees are pretty high. <laughs> People aren't super excited about it, but clearly Ethereum is driving value to, to some folks. Um, and so if we can kind of find that balance where protocols are using uh, the the I'll just call it revenue, even though we're not calling it revenue. Protocols are using the revenue that they're generating by um, providing value to the people building on top of them uh, and use that to continue to innovate on their protocols, make sure that they're better, make sure that they're faster, make sure that they you know, provide more features. Um, I think we're going to see a really, really explosive, an even more explosive pace of innovation in crypto over the next 10 years, yeah. which again, is like mind blowing because the one thing I have said is like crypto innovates so much faster than any other industry I've ever worked in. And so um, it's exciting for me, you know, like I, I look back, I look at that and I'm like, what a place to be, like what a place, what a time to be alive, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So one thing about just really fast innovation though, um, is that things start to break. And that's what we've started to see over the last like 24 months. It feels like uh, maybe ending in November, uh, the last six months, People feel a little worn out. And like we talk about this on the podcast all the time, like narrative exhaustion. But start you know, going back to November, maybe looking 18 months uh, in history, uh, you know, maybe starting with like DeFi summer, let's call it, through yeah. the end of last year, just innovation was insane, right? These like the DeFi protocols really took off. The amount of capital that flowed into them was insane. Uh, NFT markets obviously went crazy. Um, the Facebook changed their name to Meta, right? Like things just went completely bonkers. And what happened is like probably the industry got a little out ahead of its skis. And so now we're feeling the repercussions of that. So you have, I think it was this past, maybe a couple of days ago, like the near Ethereum bridge, right? The rainbow bridge, uh, something happened. I don't think any funds were lost, but then you had like, obviously the Ronin bridge, it's like 600, 650 million wormhole bridge, right? It was like 300, 320 million. Like these things start to kind of break down. So how do you guys see yourselves? Uh, actually, I'd, I'd, I'd rephrase that. Like, what is the issue? Like what's happening here? And then, and then how do you guys solve that? If, if at all, how do you guys play a role in that? Yeah. Um, so incredible, incredible observation. And in fact, like there is this narrative around like the less crypto changes, the less likely it is to break, the more stable it is. So, you know, a lot of, uh, Bitcoin maximalists say the best part about Bitcoin is that it really never changes. Um, and there's probably some truth to that. Right. And, and, you know, I, I should say like, I am not a maxi on like any crypto asset. Um, I actually am a pretty firm believer in like the role that different protocols need to play in the future of crypto. So, um, my, my opinion is kind of informed by that. Um, but the reality is, and you point this out, like the more we innovate, the more we change, uh, the more likely we are for mistakes to happen, for um, you know errors to happen, for bad code to go out. Uh, and so I, I think that's that's very right. I think your description that like you know the space got ahead of its skis uh, is probably, and for folks that don't know that that reference, like if you're skiing, if you like lean over your skis so much you fall. Uh, so uh, the idea is like you know you get you get. Uh, you get sort of ahead of yourself. And I think that's that's right. I think we've, you know, anyone who's been through a few different cycles in crypto has seen that before in different forms. So I, I, not to be flippant about it, but I just don't think it's that new. I think we're seeing it happen at slightly different scales. These, you know, I, I love that you brought up the the bridges and the bridge hacks because um, they kind of, uh, they show me, they've, they've showed a, a, an interesting trend that I've been seeing in crypto, which is this shift from, 
you know, the, the sort of risks associated with being in crypto from the infrastructure to almost the smart contract layer or the, the software layer. Um, so for folks that are, you know, kind of maybe a little bit newer to the sort of bridge world, the, the, the hacks or the errors you're talking about were, uh, are these like interoperable bridges and someone can take an asset, move it from, let's just say Ethereum uh, to Solana seamlessly so I can move my Ethereum from ETH to Solana. Um, and the, the core principle is you have, you know, a protocol that it has a contract that locks up your ETH on Ethereum. And then, uh, you know, again, I'm overly simplifying this and then simultaneously mints new ETH on the chain that you're uh, looking to move it to. So I'd lock my ETH on Ethereum and then the protocol then mints new ETH, a wrap, normally a wrapped ETH uh, on the, that new chain. Um, and uh, and so I think you're you're exactly right. We got ahead of our skis. And so we're, we're sort of saying like, oh, we're building these things really, really quickly. Um, we probably are, I don't want to say skipping, but rushing through some of the earlier like testing phases, uh, of like, you know, how, does it scale? <laughs> will it, will it break? You know, in, in, in the like old software days, you would say like, great, I launch a product, but like five people can come to my website or my app, but like, what if a million people show up tomorrow? Like, will that, will it still work? And these products failed all the time. I mean, like, if you think of even like Twitter, you know, 10 years ago, Twitter used to go down like weekly. <laughs> it was like pretty, it was pretty regular because it took uh, these companies a while to solve some of the scaling problems. And I think that these are just um, scaling issues within crypto. The thing that's a little bit scarier within crypto is that there's a lot of real funds associated with it. And so um, the stakes are pretty high. And, uh, and um, but, but I don't believe that the, um, the uh, costs, so like the, the, you know, the risks uh, is, is a should be a deterrent from innovating and innovating quickly. Like the this the crypto space uh, is just magical because of how fast it innovates. Um, and one of the things that's been that's been cool with these these bridge attacks is we've actually seen the space pretty much uh, bounce back. Um, you know, in the case of the most recent wormhole uh, attack that you were kind of mentioning, no funds were lost, which means that like the code was actually written really well, uh, and we get, we got to see like what happens when an attacker tries to attack a bridge and like is unsuccessful, which I thought is awesome. And the reality is, is like the, every time we iterate on these bridges, we're going to see them get better and better and better. So, you know, an attack from yeah. a year ago is a, a way to view a lens into the future of an attack that could happen in, in the future. And so um, I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic on like the outcomes of these. Yeah. Um, Kind of just getting back to what you were saying, like, how do we, what, you know, what's the role that we play here? And, and I was saying there's this trend that's like moving away from infrastructure to the sort of software layer. Um, if I take like staking for an example, as an example, today, there's a few different ways people can stake. Um, so like you can stake like on a centralized exchange, um, you can stake using a decentralized protocol, um, like for, for instance, Lido, um, or you can stake directly by running staking nodes on a specific network. Um, what people kind of forget, and I think that this is okay, is that the underlying infrastructure behind the you know, centralized exchange that's allowing you to stake or the underlying infrastructure behind the decentralized protocol that's allowing you to synthetically stake are all the same <laughs> as the nodes that are running that allows you to directly stake. And so what we've kind of shown and the role that we play is how do we make sure that, like I, you know, like I mentioned before, that the ground that people are building on top of isn't moving from under them. So I view, I view the fact that we're seeing these 
these innovative products come out to enable better UXs for different use cases as a really big win for folks that are building in the sort of underlying infrastructure space. Like the fact that nobody uses Lido and says like, what nodes are powering this is a really good thing. Cause it means like the nodes that are powering it are actually doing a really good job of you know producing, verifying, validating blocks, um, which is the sort of core, the crux of, you know, having a blockchain that works well. So that, that's, that's really the role we play. Yeah. Will you eventually be able to bridge, like even with this topic of bridges, will you eventually just be able to do all your bridging on Coinbase? Is that something that you guys are thinking about? So I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to get too far ahead on like the product solutions that we haven't launched yet. Um, your product team is like, damn it, Joe, what did you promise on <laughs> yeah. that podcast? <laughs> yeah. They, they're like, don't go on a podcast and promise what we're going to launch. Um, <laughs> so, so I don't want to, you know, that's like the, like a big no, no, uh, but that's the difference between uh, uh, being a founder and, uh, being working at a big company. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like even as like a founder, I still try to, <laughs> try to not do it that much every once in a while it happens. Um, no, but, but I think, uh, so, so look, to to be like entirely candid like we wouldn't be think if we weren't thinking about the interoperable interoperability and bridge space across chains we probably wouldn't be doing a very good job and so um will you be able to bridge directly on coinbase i'm not sure i'm not sure there's you know there may be a product team that's working on that um there may not be um, but what i do know is that cloud in particular is building products infrastructure and uh, API and SDK products to make it easier for devs to build interoperable protocols and to build applications on top of them. Um, and that includes being able to, you know, move assets, transfer assets, um, submit transactions, verify those transactions, um, stake, for instance. So, you know, yeah. there's there's this sort of like composable element to it. Like you bridge assets, then what happens? Are you staking them? Are you moving them? Are you trading them? Um, there's a whole bunch of uh, different use cases or, or jobs to be done that are happening. And we currently have, you know, our node product that enables people to do that. Uh, and our staking products as well enable people to delegate or to uh, participate and run their own nodes on these protocols. So yeah. we're definitely thinking a lot about the interoperable space. And, you know, I, I said it before, like our strategy was all about creating this world where there's lots of different blockchains that interact pretty seamlessly. And part of that is you know, bridging and interoperability. All right, everyone, quick break from the show to share a big update from our friends at Paraswap, the best platform to stake, swap, trade, farm, and more. Paraswap just launched gas refunds. Based on how much you stake, you can now get up to 100% of your gas refunded on all of your swaps on Paraswap. This is huge. For anyone who has spent a lot of time in DeFi, or maybe it's just starting out, you know how egregiously expensive the gas transactions can get. The gas fees are ridiculous at some points in time, and now you can get those entirely refunded on Paraswap. To participate, all you need to do is stake a minimum of 500 PSP. Big shout out to the Paraswap DAO for making these refunds possible. Really, it's just, it's tough to beat Paraswap right now. They give you the best prices. Uh, they save you money. You've got this gas refund if you stake PSP. They've got a smooth and really user-friendly interface, fast swapping. It's really everything that you'd want from a DeFi platform. If you don't use them already, check out Paraswap today at paraswap.io. Now let's get back to the show. Let, let's talk about staking. Let's go there. So right now, 30% of ETH is staked via Lido. Um, and Lido has about nice. maybe 85 to 90% of the liquid staking market. 
So not even talking about Coinbase and Coinbase Cloud, <laughs> does that, does like Lido's dominance in the staking kind of wars or battle or whatever, or just market share, does that, does that concern you at all? Um, I'm going to say no, but I'm going to say no with like an asterisk and ca caveat it. I think, uh, and this is amazing and that would, you know, tons of respect to the Lido team. They have showed the crypto world that the product that they've built is something that people want and that is incredibly valuable. We kind of talked a little bit about switching costs before. <laughs> so getting back to uh, this idea of switching costs, I actually think it's incredibly valuable that they have shown folks uh, that liquid staking is possible and done at scale. I think that uh, we need more competition in that space in particular, and we're starting to see it pop up in different ways. Um, there's a few teams that have built you know, similar liquid staking um, protocols on alternative L1s or different L1s other than Ethereum um, that are starting to think about how they can position themselves on Ethereum or are already positioning themselves on Ethereum. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a lot of competition in the next, like if, if Lido started to see a lot of competition in the next like six to 12 months. And this is gonna be cool. It's gonna force Lido to continue to innovate. It's gonna force other folks to continue to innovate as well. So maybe I should say like, yes, it concerns me if it were to stay like that forever, but no, it doesn't concern me because uh, I believe this is, it's still really early and we're in like the early phases. We're gonna see a lot of competing uh, protocols um, building uh, in that space. What, what I do see, is uh, the, again this shift, this like sort of underlying shift to people being okay with the risk from the smart contract perspective, um, and maybe they're just not thinking about it that much. So, you know, personally, I look at Lido and I say like, you know, great team, great product, really cool idea. Um, sort of they've decentralized the risk of the, the the node operators themselves and like staking to specific nodes, and also made it a lot simpler, so people don't have to think about it all that much, which is great. Um, but they've also then concentrated the risk around this contract or this, you know, this set of contracts. Uh, and I think that that's, that's okay. We just have to, you know, recognize it and, and make sure that, uh, you know, there's more eyes on it. People are looking at it and, um, and then, you know, continue to offer competing products. If, uh, we were to stay forever in a world where Lido had 30% of Ethereum staked, I think we'd be in a lot of trouble. You know, there's, you know, as, as someone who's been in proof of stake very early and was like a proponent for the space. Um, I'm pretty well aware, and for folks that aren't, that like you know, if you control more than 33% of a network uh, or votes on a network, you can basically stall the network, um, you know, whether it's maliciously or deliberately. Uh, and so that's that's something we've always uh, shied away from, and making sure that we were not you know running that risk. Um, the tricky thing about a decentralized protocol is I don't think they can actually make that actively make that decision. You know, the the the, the folks that hold the governance token would have to vote to stop minting new, um, I forget the, the wrapped ETH, is it ETH that they have? ETH, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, they would have to vote to stop minting new ETH and like close the contract or something like that. And I'm just not convinced to see a world where that happens. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I mean, it's, uh, and it, if you look at a chart of it, there's this, um, you know, back in, I mean, it's basically just going up every single month. There, the percentage of ETH staked in Lido. So today, as of today, it's thirty-one point six percent. So if they hit that thirty-three percent, that means what? What does that actually mean? What? What can they do to the network? So um, it's a it's a little bit more nuanced than if they hit thirty-three percent that they could stall it um, because they 
as far as I know, again, I'm not like, I don't work on Lido, but as far as I know, they take that Ethereum uh, and they distribute it across a bunch of different block producers on Ethereum. Yeah. Um, and so in theory, they could, uh, you know, in theory, they would be, the Lido protocol would be proposing, validating more than a third of blocks. And if you are the one that's proposing and validating more than a third of blocks, if you're for some reason incapable of validating those blocks, like, like again, I'm gonna throw up, like arbitrarily say incapable, whether the protocol goes down, it gets hacked, like there's lots of reasons why they could be incapable. Um, the Ethereum, again, we're talking about ETH2, would stall. It would not be able to reach consensus and wouldn't be able to produce new blocks. And so, um, and this is like a risk, by the way, this is not just a Lido thing. This is not just an Ethereum thing. This is a, a risk in uh, most implementations for proof of stake networks. Um, having a chain stall is pretty terrible. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you can't produce more blocks, which means nothing happens. Uh, and so we definitely don't want that, that to happen. Um, and so it's, it's a risk, right? There's, there's, uh, it's hard to perfectly quantify how likely that risk is. That's that's the issue. You know, it's it, for a centralized entity, it's it's a little bit easier. For a very distributed entity, it's it's a little bit more difficult. Um, and in particular, like a decentralized protocol, it's actually quite difficult. So, um, yeah, I mean, thirty-two. Would you say thirty-one point six percent? That's that's a, a big chunk. Um, the, yeah. the one thing I will say also is that we actually haven't seen too many uh, large. I'll just say like large aggregators of. ETH come to market to uh, with competing products. You know, I think like um, you know Ethereum being in this sort of like two ETH world right now, where there's you know ETH one the existing chain and like we're you know going through them. I know the foundation doesn't want us to talk about it as ETH two anymore, but whatever the pre merge <laughs> and post merge Ethereum. Um, I think that's also like kind of put people in like a bit of a holding pattern. I know plenty of builders yeah. that are like well. Let's just wait till the merge happens and then start to build and implement uh, uh, products. And so um, I do think like the optimist in me is always looking at this as like this feels like a temporary problem, and that um, post merge we'll probably see the you know the Krakens and the Coinbase's and the Binance's of the world, you know, which I'm sure have lots of ETH. I don't actually know for a fact, but I'm sure have plenty of ETH on them. Start to come to market with like. Uh, products that can compete with uh, Lido, and that'll probably you'll probably see a lot of the um, the concentration around Lido go down. The reality is, like Lido is the best product today. Yeah, if you are Coinbase's head of product, um, I know this might be a better question for for the product team, but I'm going to ask you it anyways. Would sure. you guys would you recommend that Coinbase to compete? Would they should you guys launch a liquid staking derivative for staked ETH, or uh, instead should you? maybe just like plug in and feed assets into Lido and give users an ability, the ability to get Steeth in their wallet. So I won't speak to anything we are or aren't doing. So like, this is a hypothetical question. <laughs> exactly. Hypothetical. Uh, it, this is a hypothetical question. There's nothing to do about what we are or aren't doing, but I will say to stay in line with uh, our mission about, you know, increasing economic freedom, the idea would be to enable people to participate where they want to participate. If they want to own, Steeth, they can own Steeth. If they want to not own Steeth because they, you know, from an ethos perspective, believe that Lido has too much control, they should have an alternative. If they would like 
to opt for simplicity and custody. There's probably a solution that exists within the exchange world or within the you know sort of centralized uh, exchange or centralized uh, retail app world. Um, and so, um, you know, I know that we are an incredibly mission focused organization, and that's how we think about building new products. It's less about you know should we build a derivative, should we not build a derivative, should we, you know, launch a competitor? I think it's really about increasing freedom and access. And that includes supporting a whole bunch of different solutions, right? And and uh, and it, we've, you know, particularly on the cloud side, we've definitely lived that, right? We're not like, you know, focused only on any chain. We're not focused on only any solution. We're not focused on, um, we participate in staking in all the three different forms that I described earlier, right? So like centralized staking, um, we work with a lot of exchanges and custodians to help them stake today. Yeah. Right. So yeah. you, know, you know, behind the scenes, we do that. Uh, decentralized staking, we participate in decentralized protocols and we run staking nodes to be able to do that. Uh, and same thing um, with uh, direct, obviously direct staking, which has been our you know bread and butter because none of these things existed in 2019, 2018, 2019, 2020. So um, we en enable individuals to run nodes and stake. And you know, if you have a 32 ETH and you want to run your own Ethereum node, you can do that on, on, on cloud today. Uh, yourself. So yeah. I think, you know, sticking to our mission and our, our values, it's really about enabling people to do uh, what they want to do, where they want to do it. Um, so, you know, I, I, yeah. I would guess that that's the direction that we go. Yeah. What, what about MEV, right? As an infrastructure provider in a lot of these POS uh, chains, I'm, I'm assuming MEV is a recurring theme. Um, I'm curious if you guys, like if Coinbase Cloud is working on any MEV products and also just like um, yeah, I don't know. It feels like whoever can kind of capture and distribute MEV the best will end up attracting the most delegators via high, higher yield. So I'm just curious how you guys are thinking about this. Yeah. Um, I was hoping, I was wondering if we'd make it through this conversation without talking about MEV. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was going to say hoping that we were, but actually, actually, that's not true. I think it's an incredible topic. Um, it's a double-edged sword is what I would say. Uh, so um, on one hand, you know, what you're describing is that, like people will use validators that can extract MBB because they'll be able to drive more value to, um, you know, for producing blocks or validating blocks to their delegates or their stakers, which is totally true. Um, but then there's the other side, which, um, you know, there's a bit of an uh, ethos pushback in the space against MEV that it's extractative, that it's, uh, you know, a, a little bit. Uh, too focused on extracting value. I mean, it's in the name, but whatever. <laughs> uh, uh, extracting value from the ecosystem versus giving it back. Um, so we have thought about it a lot, actually. Um, we've thought about how it affects our product offering. We've thought about how it affects our, you know, uh, rewards rate on like the nodes that we run. Um, and what we're trying to do is be really thoughtful. So what we haven't done is rush to market with like a, hey, here's like a MEV optimized node. Um, we've been deliberate about that because we actually are trying to be thoughtful about how we would want uh, to have this uh, exist in the world. And, and I think that that, is, that kind of falls on like, you know, people that have been in crypto for a little while, I think it's like on us to help, you know, shape the world of crypto that we, that we want to see and, you know, try, try not to be too opinionated, but like make sure that we're striking a good balance. Um, so, you know, the, the, the biggest thing for me and, and for us is like, how can we be really transparent about MEV uh, more than anything? So it's, it's not about, can we offer the product or not? It's like, how do we offer it in a way that's super transparent to, to everyone, not just the people using it, but the market. 
Um, and until we're comfortable being able to do that, we haven't been wanting to launch something. The second piece uh, is, you know, mostly around like, how can we give back? So, uh, you know, if you think about MEV as a means to uh, extract value, but as you're extracting value, um, how can you give back to the ecosystem in the space? And so a lot of conversations that we've had internally on the product side at cloud is like, can we, can we capture MEV, but should we carve off a portion of it and give it back to the foundation to support future innovation and development? You know, like I'm not saying we're doing that, but these are examples of ways. Should we use it to sponsor Gitcoin grants or hackathons? Um, you know, it, it's, it's really like, we want to make sure that we're creating a balance and creating a, um, sustainable business, but at the same time, making sure we're not just taking, taking, taking from the ecosystem. And, um, and so it, to be able to do that well, I think you need to be a little bit patient and a little bit thoughtful about the products that you build and the ones you go to market with, because it's really hard to kind of backtrack once you go to market with something. What is the, I mean, I hear a lot of folks talk about like, there's this moral hazard, right? For large, these like large market makers and prop traders who make millions on MEV. And they're also, the, and, and when they're also the top validators in the network, right? And I think that there's this uh, concern that maximizing MEV may be best for prop trading, but maybe not best for the network. What What is that? Can you just explain for folks who maybe don't know MEV as well? Like, what is that concern? Why do folks say it's a moral hazard? And why wouldn't, if you're, maybe, I mean, there's this word extracting value, which sounds bad, but if you just change it to say generating value, like why <laughs> why, why, why is this a bad thing basically? So it's, it's a bit, okay. Uh, well, there's two pieces. One, I'll, I'll say that um, I am not, like in uh, the pinnacle of experts on MEV, there's a, there's yep. folks in the space that are much more uh, well versed in it than I am. I don't I don't you know do any prop trading. I don't <laughs> I don't I don't you know I don't do I don't participate personally in the activities that extract MEV. Um, so my my understanding of MEV is you know it's it's good, but it's like you know relatively um, high level. So the the moral hazard is uh, mostly around. Um, how transactions are built uh, in the ecosystem. And so um, it, it essentially, uh, you can change the transaction ordering uh, on, a, on a block. And if you are the person who, the, I'm going to say person, but the entity or the organization that is responsible for setting the transaction order, but also uh, deciding transaction order that benefits you more so than other folks in the ecosystem, you create this uh, incentive, this perverse incentive structure where you're only acting uh, in, on your own behalf. And the bigger you are, the more you can do that. So if you are 30% of Ethereum, for instance, um, and uh, you are you know, statistically going to validate and produce one third of all blocks, um, one third of transactions you can organize in a way where you get the maximum amount of extraction from the transaction ordering. Um, so when you have players that kind of cross both playing fields, one, I'm trying to you know, extract as much value from this transaction order as possible. And two, I'm trying to, uh, I'm the one that's responsible for, <laughs> has this like responsibility for proposing, validating and signing blocks. Um, you, you, you basically like put the, the two, two decisions that can be pretty detrimental, uh, in one, in one entity's hands. Um, and you know, there's, 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 uh, teams like Flashbots, which are trying to democratize access to this. So, um, you know, if everybody has the entire same tool set to, uh, to, you know, engage in MEV, like Flashbots, for instance, 
then it kind of reduces the barriers to entry and engaging in MEV and then like anyone can do it. And so then you sort of, in a weird way, it's like a, I hate this expression, but it's almost like an arms race. You know, it's like, it's like if, if you have like the, the best weapons, then like you can be really extractive. But then if like all the weapon, if everyone has all the, the best weapons, then it's like no one can really be that extractive. So I'm, I'm pretty bullish on, on technologies like uh, and teams like Flashbots that are helping making it easier for uh, folks to engage in it. I do think nice. it's still a relatively esoteric space right now. I think like, you know, really limited to like prop, prop houses and um, yeah. pretty advanced traders. And but, but that'll change. I think we'll start to see more in products and services that uh, kind of bake it into what they've done. Let's get back into some of the infrastructure stuff. Um, one thing that's sure. really popular right now, which is like the scaling wars, is we've seen a lot of developer SDKs from like Cosmos come out. You've seen subnets from Avalanche and I think Polygon. Um, Yep. Spinning up a, uh, a new chain or just like a rollup is an extremely heavy burden for anyone who's actually been in the weeds kind of doing this. Is this an area that you see Coinbase Cloud potentially getting into? Yeah, it's, it's actually an area that we have a ton of experience in too. So, um, I, you know, I mentioned earlier on that we've worked with protocol teams from the earliest phases and, and that's, that's actually quite literal. So pl there's plenty of protocol teams, um, including some of the most popular L1s today that we were... Uh, pretty actively involved in like even the earliest test nets. So um, this is kind of a fun fact. One of the first protocols that, um, you know, the, the, our platform supported was Cosmos and um, Cosmos launched in this incentivized test net, actually a test net and then an incentivized test net. And there was no, you know, real rewards or no real benefit to being on it other than, you know, helping the ecosystem, um, you know, cold start, which is a very, very difficult problem. Um, and so we have a ton of experience working with early protocol teams. We've done this, like I said, with Cosmos, with we were with Solana. We were on uh, the Solana uh, um, early, early test nets from you know a year or two years before even the beta net went long, uh, went live. Um, we were one of the earliest uh, um, validators and block producers on ETH two, and um, continue to to support um, you know the the Ethereum uh, Ethereum chain as it as it moves towards the merge. Um, but to your point, like. The protocol teams are trying to make it easier uh, to spin up these these networks, and uh, one of the things that you're kind of hitting at, which without directly hitting at it, is that there's actually this trend in some of these ecosystems to create this shared security model main chain, and then you have these like application specific or modular subchains. So subnets is, is an example. Um, you know, Avalanche is focused on like how do we have like a network specifically for, you know. Uh, decks or for gaming, we see the same thing in Cosmos, where um, in the Cosmos and Tendermint ecosystem, where you have the sort of Cosmos main chain, and you have like the Osmo chain, for instance, specifically um, just a chain for uh, for for decks, the the Osmo decks, and they, you know they have the Stargaze uh, chain, which is specifically their chain for <laughs> uh, NFTs, um, and uh, and so the the protocol teams have been making it easier, which is cool. Um, you know, the SDKs and then like, you know, something like IBC, which is the inter-blockchain uh, connectivity, I believe it stands for, um, yeah. which the Tendermint team has built to make it easier, um, sort of the, the kind of tooling uh, around making it easier to communicate with like the Cosmos chain and then like these sub-chains. Um, and Polkadot's doing a similar thing uh, where they have the parachains as well that, you know, have a shared security model with the main Polkadot chain. Um so we, we've been uh, so the, the ways we've been involved there is one we work with early protocol teams regularly. So we, we you know we launched Evmos uh, recently. Um, we've worked with like the Akala team and the Corora team and like uh, in, in Polkadot. 
Um, and so a lot of times these protocol founders will come to us and say like, Hey, like we're looking for help to get this cold start off the ground. Um, and we're experts in, um, getting protocols up and off the ground running. And, um, and we do that, uh, it, it's, it's really valuable for us because we get to be involved very, very early. And then we also then, um, build some of our own tooling, like read and write nodes on top of those chains, as well as staking nodes and, you know, offer that to the market. So that's where it helps, you know, the transitively helps our, our business model as well. Um, so yeah, super early. Um, we then uh, work with early stakers to help produce blocks and get them up and running. You know, day one launches is really important for us. Uh, and uh, and then yeah, and just making sure that we're making these ecosystem really robust. You know, and, and having a ton of expertise in the the you know the I don't know what I probably we should probably come up with a name like a unified name for this, but basically like the you know the the main chain ecosystems. So there's like the L1s and then the L2s or the sub chains or the side chains around them. Um, we call them ecosystems internally, but yeah. So we, we're, yeah. we're pretty involved and created a lot of expertise around those ecosystems. If you were, uh, did did you follow the Yuga, Yuga Labs like land sale debacle over the weekend? Um, relatively loosely. Uh, so yes, but like I didn't try and mint any land, so not as close, yeah. but yeah, pretty closely. Yeah. If, if you, if you were Yuga Labs, so Yuga Labs comes out. So like they, you know, the gas went to like 3000 bucks or something like that. 4,000 yeah. bucks. I forget what it actually was. Uh, and totally clogged up the entire chain. It was kind of this like uh, reminiscent of 2017 crypto kitties moment. Right. And <laughs> if you, so Yuga Labs comes out and they say, okay, we, we you know, we, we clogged up Ethereum. We need to move to our own chain basically. If you are Yuga Labs, and so a lot of people have pushed back and say, why do they need to create their own chain? Should they move on to like an L2? Should they actually fork an L2? If you're Yuga Labs, what are you doing? What is your solution to this? And and can Coinbase Cloud help with it? Yes, Coinbase Cloud can help with it. <laughs> it's the answer one, yes, Coinbase Cloud can help with it, but that's obviously dependent on my answer. This is an opinionated answer, so I don't want to like offend anybody at Yuga, but um, no, I don't think that they need to launch their own chain. I think that we've actually seen a number of chains that can support the type of scale that they're looking for, um, even if they decided that they wanted to stay on Ethereum. And there, there's a few, right? Like, you know, Flow in particular, you, you mentioned CryptoKitties, right? Like the team from Dapper and and that then launched Flow was literally the exact same problem that we're seeing that we saw over the weekend, which was like CryptoKitties broke Ethereum and they were like, let's build our own chain specifically for NFTs. So like a world where like every successful NFT project decides it needs to build its own main chain is fine. It just doesn't sound like the, it wouldn't be the solution that I would take. You know, I, I said like my the our thesis is that there's going to be multiple chains, many, many chains, and some of those will be duplicative. There'll be many NFT chains. I think that's totally fine. Does every successful NFT project need to build their own chain? Probably not, right? Like, so I would maybe take a step back and look at what has happened historically. You know, I think when Dapper decided they were going to do it and they built Flow, there wasn't really an NFT chain, and so like maybe that was the right time and the right idea. Um, I think today I would not. Um, I think that as we're seeing Ethereum move more modular and breaking up consensus execution and data availability. Um, which is what the merge is going to do and like the you know the upgrades on ethereum is going to do the problems that you have faced during their like sort of mint and, and scaling is could be done on an, an l2 and they could have used uh, you know polygon or arbitrum or optimism or you know any of the other l2s yeah. um, that could have supported this so if it was me uh i would have you know i'd come to cloud and i'd say like hey we actually are going to have a really large presence on you know this L2 or these two L2s, for instance, because we want to decentralize it a little bit, um, help us run nodes 
on these different protocols so that we have like really amazing connectivity that we can, you know, make the ground a little bit less shaky. Um, but then these L2s uh, and rollups will help uh, solve some of the, um, you know, scaling issues and clogging up the main chain uh, issues. So that's what I, that's what I would do. Um, and maybe I yeah. should reach out to them and, <laughs> and, and suggest it. Um, give, give them the pitch. Yeah. Give them the pitch. <laughs> yeah, I'll, 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 <laughs> nice I'll give them. I'll give them the pitch. I'll, I'll show them my one kennel and my one kennel dog and be like, "Look, I'm a big, I'm a big time Yuga supporter." Um, and uh, you know, I think y'all should do this and listen to me. One thing that I want to get your take on is actually a prediction. So Vance and Michael from Framework Ventures yeah. came on the podcast the other day. Really, really interesting ep uh, episode. They have they put out so they just raised their four hundred million dollar fund, yeah. uh, and they put out about I think it was like twenty predictions. So for the year by the year twenty thirty, and one of the predictions was that most SaaS businesses that have their own public facing API will end up having their own L two on Ethereum. So most SaaS businesses by 2030 will have their own L2 on Ethereum, which replaces their public facing API. What do you think about that prediction? I love it. Um, I think the definition of L2 is maybe a bit loose. Uh, so the way we view L2s today are mostly in the form of like, you know, very specific type rollups. Uh, I think that the idea of having a open source public API is way more beneficial and powerful to even the SaaS business as well as the ecosystem, more eyes on it, more people able to, you know, uh, com you compose and, and abstract it away or build stuff on top of it. So this, this is very valuable, for sure. Um, I think if you like really blurred or smudged the definition of like what an L two is, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, I think that we're going to see a ton of major businesses that use um, very successful L ones as a you know. Uh, uh, you know, a finality layer for for elements of their business, and they could build scalable uh, L two solutions, subnets, parachains, uh, side chains, whatever you want to call them, depending on the ecosystem you're working on. Um, that uh, that support their business. So yeah, yeah, I think this. I actually think that's a really really cool prediction. I think it's also entirely in line with uh, this view that we're going to exist in the multi chain world. And if you looked at like a modern, you know. A modern Shopify business, for instance, there's a ton of SaaS that they use in the background that are private APIs. Um, a world where those private APIs are actually, you know, public L2 chains with public APIs uh, is, you know, very much in line with our vision of this like multi-chain world, and that all software is going to be crypto software. I think, yeah, you know, the, the thing that that I like to tell the team and the thing I like to tell folks is. Uh, we're going to get to a point where we stop saying like this is a Web three company or this is a crypto company. The same way as we did, like it was a very short period where companies were called mobile companies or Web two companies, right? Um, short period being a couple of years. Uh, but I think you know we're in that phase right now where it's oh this is a Web three company, oh this is a crypto company. In ten years, by by that time, no one's going to say this is a crypto company. There's going to be a company, and companies are going to have or you know organizations, whether maybe they're DAOs, maybe they're not companies anymore, are going to have. Uh, you know, massive crypto, massive crypto software components to to their product, to their products and their their software. Last question here, Joe, is um, you started Bison Trails after just building in the space and finding that the underlying there are a lot of underlying problems with the existing infrastructure. Yeah. What are the blaring holes in infrastructure today? And maybe targeting the answer at there's a lot of entrepreneurs and and founders and and even investors who listen to this. And is there any low hanging fruit outside of maybe? Coinbase Cloud's purview that you would encourage other teams to, to start working on? 
Yeah. Um, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to get, I don't want to, what was, I don't want to get too far over my own skis here. Um, I also, uh, we have like a, a pretty long-term roadmap that is like multi-year. And so I don't want to give too much away about like the stuff that we're thinking <laughs> about in the, in the future. Um, I think being a little bit more like focusing on like the development of the ecosystem and de the development of the crypto space. Um, I think that uh, there's a tremendous amount of software work and developer tooling work to be done around smart contracts, around the auditability, the building, the composability around it. Um, I think there's a tremendous amount of work to be done around um, cross-chain communication. So not just like a protocol that does bridging, but you know, data sharing, uh, cross-chain execution. Um, I think that uh, there's a tremendous amount of work uh, to be done uh, still on like reliable infrastructure nodes and APIs in the various types of protocols that we're seeing. So, um, you know, you see storage protocols, you see, you know, smart contract uh, protocols, you see uh, bridge protocols. Um, we're still kind of in the infancy in a lot of these. So smart contract ones are maybe the most mature, but still only a few years. Bridges are barely a year, you know, <laughs> like, the, yeah. the, like the oldest live bridge, I think is like just over a year or something like that, which is insane. Um, and so I think there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done around the, the sort of open access APIs uh, that helps uh, these different protocols communicate. I think that's maybe as far as I'll go. I have like, you know, there's a couple ideas that we're working on that are like, Can't it's crazy. The, the secret sauce. <laughs> well, it's, it's not even so much secret sauce. It's more like, um, it's, it's more like, uh, you know, we're in progress on a couple of these things and we're really excited about it. The, um, you know, the last thing I'll say there is that anyone who's really great in the space, specifically focused on developers, um, you know, helping people build, you need to be really plugged in and listening to the developers. Um, and that's like the most important yeah. thing that, that, you know, any of us are doing. And it's something that like my co-founder and I spent a tremendous amount of time doing. You said, you said, you know, we built this company and we built this product to help our own, to serve our own needs it's because we are developers. We know the space, we are the builders in the space and staying connected with the builders is the most important uh, thing that, you know, any of us or any of these companies need to do because that's how you understand the pain points. We're going to end on this, which is just, I just love this is the uh, Coinbase seed pitch deck from summer of 2012. And uh, the main pain point was just that Bitcoin is too difficult to use. And it shares this like current tools and it's just a bunch of code. And then you've got this screenshot of Coinbase, which by the way, if you can kind of zoom in, I don't know if you can see it, it's got a balance of 42 Bitcoin. So what is that? That's like a price of like 1.6 million bucks now. So I don't <laughs> think they were expecting uh, for the average user to have 1.6 million in their account. So th I just love this. I just love this screen. And it's amazing to see that, you know, this is from summer of 2012, 10 years later, uh, Coinbase is still working on the mission of making all of this stuff easier to use. So hats off to you and, and yeah, and the entire Coinbase cloud team. I love, um, I love this. This is awesome. And thanks for, thanks for sharing this. I wish I, you know, there's, there's a version of this, that's the cloud version. You know, this is the Coinbase version, right? Like how do you like buy Bitcoin? Yeah. It's too difficult to use. And literally there's a version of this seed, you know, deck slide that's like crypto is too hard to build in and it's like a bunch of developer tools and then there's like you know originally bison trails but now you know coinbase cloud exactly awesome. exactly well keep up the good work man uh i think Thank we're all you. rooting for you and um yeah be well we'll see you at permissionless sweet thanks for having me on the show and uh, i'm excited to see you